Amen. What Pastor Jeff said. (laughs) All right, would you pray with me uh, before we dive in? Father God, thank you that we can be in this place this morning. Thank you for words of encouragement. Thank you, God, that you recognize all of us. And in fact, we are all called. And so may we be about your work in this world so that indeed you can come one day and take us to be in the place that you are. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, so my, my daughter Madison graduated uh, this year. We celebrated that. And uh, one of the things we wanted to do is just take her on a little bit of a trip to, uh, to celebrate that and to uh, encourage her. And um, so my wife, Christina, and my daughter, Madison, and I, uh, we went to New York City. That's one of our favorite cities. In fact, if you know my girls, you know my daughters, they're all named after New York City. Um, so we, uh, we, we got up real early. Um, we had a very early morning flight, uh, Delta out of uh, Orlando, and um, very, very early. So we wanted to get there early enough. We could spend that day. It was a Thursday. Spend all day Thursday sightseeing and seeing New York and land just in time, do lunch and that sort of thing. So uh, we were looking forward to this trip. Planned it out. A great time, you know, we expected to have. And uh, with an early morning flight, you kind of think, hey, I'll have a chance to sort of, you know, catch a, catch a real quick power nap. It's just about a two to two and a half hour flight up to uh, JFK. And um, sure, enough, you know, that's what I had in mind. We're on an MD-88. If you fly enough, you kind of know what the planes are situated like with the seats. That's uh, three seats on one side, on the left, and two seats on the other side. So my wife and I sat together on the two-seat side, and Madison was across the aisle on the, in the three-seat side, but right there next to us, and we all sort of sat together. And then um, there are some people that came on, and um, as it would have it, there were two children that would come and sit behind us on this plane. Yes, they would sit behind us. And so these children were somewhere between the ages of 8 and 10 years old, and I was a brother and a sister, and I knew something was up because the mom put the two kids on my side behind Christina and I, and she sat across the aisle. She didn't even want to sit with them. (laughs) All right? So she sits across the aisle over there and she's on her phone and playing games and the kids, it's their first time on a plane. And that was cute for about five minutes, <laughs> all right? And so the kids are talking, I'm like, yeah, that's so good. Help us, Jesus. And, and the kids, you know, they're, they're, they're so great. Look out there and I, I think I can see my luggage and they're talking and then the takeoff, they're just all excited and they're and all the adults are smiling and it's great and everything's wonderful. And, and then they started kicking the back of our seats. You know that little, that little thud and you kind of go. And I thought I was going to get that power nap in, but they continued to kick. And then they started to do the stretch move behind your seat where they stretch their legs all the way out. They put it in the small of your back and you kind of go, oh. And I'm a pastor. I'm very patient. I'm very patient and loving and kind towards all children. Jesus said, forbid not the little children. He wasn't talking about these children. And so, and so these children continue to push and kick and eventually begin to climb on our seat. And mom is totally disconnected. She needed a Sabbath, man. She needed a break from these children. 
And this went on. This went on the entire flight. The entire flight, man, just thung, thung, thung. it got so bad, my, my wife, I said, honey, why don't you switch with Madison? And we tried to make that work a little bit better. And eventually I began to sort of turn around and glare at them. <laughs> I was having to repent in my heart because I was thinking really terrible things about these children. What was supposed to be a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour flight of peace and calm preparation for our great trip to New York turned into what felt like a 10-hour flight where I was just begging Jesus, would you come now and take me? Just, just come right now, Jesus. And if not me, take the children. <laughs> right? Take the mom too, it's okay. And, and I was just, this flight, it seemed eternal, you know? Please let it in, Jesus. Land the plane and let us off. You should have seen us, man. As soon as the, la- the plane landed and the little ding, they get ding, you're like, get out, get out of here, you know? Uh-oh. <laughs> and we were done. We were done being on that plane, man. We were ready. We were ready for the end, if you will. Now, what I know about us as Christians and what we know particularly as Seventh-day Adventists, we appreciate, we appreciate the notion that this all comes to an end. That this life that we live here on this planet with children kicking your seat and much worse things than kids kicking your seats. While it may seem that we will always be here, while it may seem that this thing will never come to an end, what we know and what we believe, what we have deep conviction over is that Jesus will in fact keep his promise and that he will return, that there is an end. And every time in this church and other churches around this community, when there's a funeral, there's a casket down in the front of the church, we all sense this deep longing for the end because we want this thing to be over. No more caskets, no more dying people, no more violence, no more struggle, no more pain, no more cars that break down, Sebastian. The end. The end. We long for the end, for it all to be over. It's part of who we are really as Adventists. We believe that that the end will come. We believe that Jesus will come and he will put an end to all the pain, suffering, and dying. And that ultimately we have a place where we will be with him. We call it, or the theologians call it, the study of eschatology or the study of end things. It's sort of, it's even captured within the name Seventh-day Adventists. Adventist. And Adventist basically refers to our belief of uh, that Jesus is going to come or that there will be a return and a, and, a, and a visual scene of Jesus, an advent, if you will, that there will be a coming and revealing of Jesus. But eschatology is a study of end time events. In fact, if you go and look at our fundamental statements of scripture, our our doctrinal statements, you'll find about somewhere between four and five of those statements have, have eschatological implications. In other words, they have something to do with the end and Jesus' return and Jesus coming to set everything straight and, and to return things to the way he wants them to be. So it's very much a part of us to long for the end as a people. In fact, I guarantee you, if you watch the the rest of the GC session, it hasn't been really awesome to be able to not have to go to San Antonio. 
um, but be able to watch on the Hope Channel all the things that are going on at the GC session. But what you'll hear before this, these sessions are over, I almost, I'll guarantee you, someone will say, man, man, if we, if we get to have a GC session in Indianapolis in 2020 or whatever it is, if we... In other words, implying that it may very well be that this Jesus that we believe is going to return. In fact, we believe as Adventists that it's our very mission. It's our very purpose on this planet to tell people that Jesus is going to return and to encourage them to be ready. But someone will say at this GC session before it's all over, if we are here, if we are here, and there's a GC session in Indianapolis, if we are here, if we are here because we believe we believe that Jesus will return and set all things straight I want to take you to a passage in scripture that also speaks to this idea of us longing for and desiring Jesus to be with us um, this is a great passage from the book of Romans check out Romans chapter 8 verses verse 18 we're going to look at verse 18 and 19 then we'll skip down to verse 22 but check this out I consider that our present sufferings Evil children kicking the back of your seat. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, will be revealed in us. Verse 19, the creation itself, even the trees and, and the earth and nature itself, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. There's something that isn't right and even nature understands. Your own heart, my heart, we understand that this is not the place that we are meant for. That this is not our ultimate destiny, that there is some other place that we are meant for. If you go down to verse 22, listen to this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Ugh. Been groaning. You ever had a groaning moment where you just kind of go, ugh. Kind of like Sebastian this morning. I don't want to be here, right? There is another place that you are meant to be. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, he says. Uh, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eager, eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, check this out, this is our great hope. At the end of every camp meeting and GC session, they always sing that song, we have this hope, right? Because that's what we know and what we're all about. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? It's not about what's around you and what you already see. In verse 25, he says this. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. So that's where we find ourselves we find ourselves as these people who are waiting patiently. There's a longing, there's a groaning, there's, a, there's an anticipation, there's a, there's a discomfort with this place. Oh, sometimes we get comfortable, we like our stuff, we like the conveniences that we experience, but we know deep within our heart of hearts, we are not where we are ultimately supposed to be. And we wanna tell others and we wanna show others. We wanna encourage others, man. This world is not our home. This is not what I am meant for. 
There's another section of Scripture that comes in the form of a, a powerful promise. You've all likely, if you grew up in the church, you probably memorize these passages. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And I just want you to take a look at these passages um, with me. Theologians call this section of Jesus' uh, teaching and his writings, they call this the, what they call the farewell discourse. In other words, Jesus has his followers there and he knows that he is about to leave the scene. He knows that he's on his way out. And so he wants to tell them what's coming, give them a heads up about what's going to happen, that he is ultimately going to leave. He wants to let them know that, that everything is going to be Okay, because you can imagine that these men, these followers of Jesus who have seen Jesus in action, they've seen him heal, they've seen him touch, they've heard him preach, they've heard him, they've seen him do all this miraculous stuff. They've formed a relationship with this Jesus. They have grown to love him and to know him and their hearts and their minds are bound together. And this Jesus is beginning to explain to them what's going to go down in just a little while. You can imagine the anxiousness and the anxiety because there's a certain sort of security with Jesus. Even though they may not be totally convinced or fully aware of who he is, there's a certain peace that comes with knowing Jesus. There's a certain power that attends him. And so they were confident in that and they they trusted in that and they believed in that. And, And here's what Jesus has to tell them because they are getting... There's a, little, there's a little bit of anxiety over the reality of what Jesus is about to tell them. And I want you to notice what Jesus, what Jesus shares with them. Just notice, man, this is great. Uh, 14, 1, 2, and 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Awesome words of assurance. Pretty profound promise coming from Jesus. So Jesus talks to them about a beginning, but also an ending. He says, this is going to be the beginning of a time in which you will be without me. But don't, don't worry. Because there's also going to be an ending when I will return. So you don't need to be worried. You don't need to be anxious. In fact, I don't want your heart to be troubled at all. Because whereas there is a, a beginning of a time without me right now, there will be an ending of that time when you are without me and we will be reunited again and you can take it to the bank. It's a guarantee. I promise I will be back. Now, what, we can't, what can't be lost on Jesus making this profound statement about coming back and asking them, inviting them to believe it, is how significant a promise was in the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, when, 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 Jesus, if Jesus, when Jesus says these words, something clicked. They automatically knew that, this, that, that it was a guarantee, that it was something solid that they could believe in, that they could place their faith in. There was, it wasn't like a promise that you and I make that, oh yeah, we can, we can do that. And it's just sort of, you know, we're a little flaky at times, right? 
In the Hebrew mind, in the language that when Jesus spoke to them, something said, hey, this is a solid for sure thing. This is, this is, this is absolute truth. So he's not just, he's not just trying, to, trying to sort of uh, give them a little false hope or give them, you know, sort of, uh, you know, help them to feel good in the moment because he's leaving. No, 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 no. When he speaks these words... He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I am going to come back. And the language that he used for them at that time, it had profound and deep meaning. It was a type of word that, that you would get and you, you'd be like, okay, yeah, no, it's good. I, I got you. I, I'm solid. It may not have relieved all the anxiety in the moment, but, but deep within their hearts, as much as they did not want to say bye to this Jesus, and as much as they would miss him, they knew in their heart of hearts, yeah, he's coming back. He's coming back. So here's the first lesson for those of us who are Adventists who talk about Jesus returning. And sometimes we talk about it in such a way that doesn't make people hopeful, it makes people afraid and scared. Yeah. Here's the first lesson. This promise should bring peace, man. It should not bring panic. It should not bring chaos. It should not bring anxiousness and anxiety. If we're going to talk about end times as Adventists who are given this, this time and this mission and this purpose to talk about it, let's talk about it in such a way that it brings people peace for heaven's sake, man. Can we talk about it in such a way that people don't go to bed at night with nightmares? Can we talk about it in such a way that it gives people assurance and reassurance and hope and not despair and anxiousness and wondering and insecurity? Can we talk about it in the same way that Jesus meant it to be talked about, that it's solid, that it's real, that you can trust in it, that you can believe it, that it's something you can live with deep conviction over, that he in fact will return? You see, the promise should bring peace, man, not panic. It should bring peace. Every Christ follower who believes in the advent of Jesus, in the second advent of Jesus, which, by the way, those aren't just Seventh-day Adventists. There are lots of Adventists, if you will. Our belief in that should bring a deep and profound sense of peace and not alarm. Now, here's the other thing that it should do for us, all right? I want you to think about this. Not only should it bring us peace, this promise of Jesus, but it gives us permission. It gives us permission. I want you to think about that for a moment. When I think about this topic of end-time events, when I think about eschatology, what, two, two things sort of come to mind for me. Um, one has to do with... Um, how do I live? How do I live in light of the second coming? How do I have a life, in other words? Because you would get the impression from some people that, that before Jesus comes, as we live in preparation for his return, you cannot really have a life. You're just sort of on lockdown, being good, making sure you don't mess up before Jesus come, comes and get lost, right? So the question becomes, how do I have a life in light of the fact that Jesus is coming? Can I even have a life? 
And what this promise does for us is that it gives us permission. It gives us permission to have a life because we have peace. Now, what are we given permission to do? What does this life mean? What am I getting at? Well, my, my, heart, my heart goes to the, the idea that, that, that God sort of gave us this purpose and to sort of talk about and to, to, to prepare people. And one of the ways that we can be about that work is to, is to dive into places where there's pain, where there's brokenness. To go to the places that would break the heart of God and break the heart of Jesus and, and, and be in those places. In other words, it doesn't do us any good to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good up until Jesus comes. We have permission because we know the promise and that brings peace to our hearts. So we spend our time going and doing the things. The disciples, when they got that word, Jesus is going to leave you. They didn't stop, man. That wasn't the end of the mission. They had their bumps along the way. But Jesus said, I'm going to come to you as the comforter, as the spirit, and, and then I will empower you to do great things. So what, do, what should we be about doing in this day and age with the permission that we have to have a life? It's a life of serving. It's a life of engaging. It's a life of, of, of giving people a little bit of taste of heaven on earth and not the other place, Christians. <laughs> you wonder sometimes. When people interact with us, they wonder sometimes if we really do believe there is a heaven because you wouldn't tell by looking at our faces. <laughs> because of the promise, we have permission to engage to be present with, to have passion for the people around us, and to help them to have the hope and the assurance and the promise that in fact there is a God and he, he will reveal himself that this will end. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? There are places in this world and places right here in our own community and neighborhoods where people where people long for the end, right? They want something, that, that they're just going through hell on earth. I need this to end. And while it may not end in the temporary right now, or maybe we can provide some relief in some way, what we hope to communicate to them is that there's a God who made a promise. You can read it in John 14, one through three. It's guaranteed, it's solid, that this will end that your pain will end, that your suffering will end, that stuff will end. That doesn't give us permission to ignore that in the present, folks. It just means that ultimately, you and I, while we relieve some of the suffering in the moment, ultimately, relief comes from the one who promised that he would come back. And that's who they need to know. That's who... We need to point them in the direction of, not to terrify and scare people, but to give them hope, to let them know that the promise is for them, that this stuff will end, man, that it will end. I got to wrap up, um, but I want to end just uh, to share with you a little bit of a story. Um, I, um, I, like I said, you guys all know, I grew up in Arkansas, and... Um, uh, that's, that's my home state. 
So I grew up following a football team, a college football team, uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks. Uh, they still are my favorite college football team, basketball team, college sports team. And um, so it was very exciting when I was a, uh, I don't even remember what grade I was in, but at one point, uh, the, the Razorbacks, while I lived in Arkansas, the Arkansas Razorbacks went to the Cotton Bowl. Their football team had achieved, uh, you know, going to the Cotton Bowl. That was a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big bowl. And um, they were going to play the UCLA Bruins. And the quarterback of the UCLA Bruins at this time was a guy by the name of Troy Aikman, who would eventually become the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, which is my favorite team. You already knew that. Amen. So, um, so this was the only time that I, that I would cheer against Troy Aikman. But they made it to the Cotton Bowl, and everything in me wanted to, me, wanted to go to that game. I so wanted to go to that game, but I knew tickets would be expensive, and how on earth would I get to go to that game? That's, I mean, only people that are important can go to that game. That's a big game. And I told my mom, and my mom was like, man, I wish you could go to that game too. Uh, we don't have the money for that, so don't even think about it, right? Um, but my mom, my mom's a cool lady, and uh, she didn't have any money, but she was quick on the phone. And so she would listen to the radio, because the radio station, this is a big deal. So the radio station started giving away like tickets, really great tickets, like VIP pass type of tickets. My mom was going to, she was good on the phone. That's where you call in, be caller number so-and-so. And my mom won tickets. <laughs> my mom wins these tickets to go to the, the, you know, the Cotton Bowl to see, so I could see the Razorbacks. And so she surprised me. We had two 50-yard line tickets, baby right down front. And so we go, and the day came. We got up really early. We didn't have enough money to stay in a hotel, so we left really early in the morning. And, um, and we drove down to Dallas, the Cotton Bowl, and uh, we, we got in our seats super early because we were super early. And so we get there, and uh, we're, we're seated. And then towards, right, as we move towards the start of the game, and we're seated, 50-yard line, probably nine rows up, all right? Amazing seats. Then I begin to look around me as we get closer to the kickoff, and I'm looking at who's seated around me because I'm thinking, hey, there must be some important people around here. So get this. Seated behind me and up and kind of to my right was a guy by the name of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. <laughs> I was sitting in front of Sam Walton, baby. <laughs> All right, so and I looked to my left, and I looked over my shoulder, seated a couple of rows uh, behind me and down a ways, not on the 50-yard line, was a man by the name of Bill Clinton. <laughs> I was sitting in front of Bill Clinton. <laughs> I had better seats than the guy who would become the president of the United States. Amazing seats, man. It was awesome. It was amazing. Now, here's the thing. We loved that game. We had a blast at the game. We had a wonderful game. Um, but there was no way that I would ever think that I would have a place in that game, in that stadium, to be there. Now, here's the cool thing about the God that we serve. You may not think that you have a place in his kingdom. And you absolutely don't have enough money or enough material possessions or, or have enough virtue within you to earn it or to buy a place in the kingdom. But the God of the universe won the victory for you. 
And so because of that, you have a place in heaven. You have a place where it all comes to an end. All the suffering, all the pain, all the junk that you've lived through, the God of the universe purchased for you eternity so that you could be in that place for him. And that's not something that should cause panic or paranoia. It should cause you an enormous sense of peace. You have a place, man. You don't deserve a place. There's never been a time in which you can earn that place. All it is is that the God of the universe, because of grace and his love for you, he purchased, he bought that place. It's the best seat in the house. And get this, it's not, it's not just a temporary place for just a little bit of time. It's a permanent residence in his presence. Because for some reason, he likes you. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. Sebastian, come sing and lead us in this final song. Right?